In the preface of his 1922 book, The History of the 36th Ulster Division, the author Cyril Falls made a noteworthy prediction, and this is what he said. A hundred years hence, men will be delving into our records of the late war. Soldiers will be studying the lessons of its battles, but yet a greater number of seekers will be demanding with curiosity how men lived in such circumstances, how they reacted to the strain of war, and what compensations they found. And how right he was. We have now emerged from a four to five year period of the First World War centenary, and there's been an abundance of research, books, projects, events and commemorations, more so than at any other time since the war has ended. And yet, as Keith Jeffrey has suggested, we will never know the precise reality of what happened in the Great War. The scale is just too large for us to comprehend. The First World War is an event that remains seared onto the psyche of Northern Ireland a hundred years after it ended. One only has to look around on any given day at the murals, flags, shop fronts, memorials, street names, parades and commemorations to see that this historical event continues to shape our present. But why is that? Ireland was decisively affected by the war. 210,000 Irish men of all backgrounds played a military role in this conflict. The death toll was somewhere in the region of 35,000. But the importance of the First World War is much more than just the body count. It split Irish nationalism, it copper-fastened partition, and in turn isolated Ulster Unionism. The First World War permanently transformed the Irish political landscape, and for this reason I would contend that the First World War was the single most important event of modern Irish history. The First World War, and more specifically East Belfast's contribution to it, has been my life's research up to this point. Uh, However, for the purposes of this episode, I'll be looking at Sandy Rowe's contribution to the Great War. And when I sat down and started to write this episode, it quickly became clear that there was a vast amount of content at my disposal. And so what I've done is I've actually split this up into three separate episodes. Uh, And so what you're going to hear now is part one of Sandy Rowe and the Great War. In the summer of 1914, much of the local newspaper coverage in Belfast focused on the unfolding home rule crisis in Ireland. And with much justification given the volatility of the political situation here. Three days before the outbreak of the war then, the South Belfast UVF were having drums and colours presented to them at the Balmoral showgrounds. However, their intention was not to flex their muscle at Germany, rather to demonstrate to the British government that they were prepared for whatever might lay ahead. What did lie ahead was the prospect of a civil war in Ulster. Whether it would have actually happened is a discussion for another day. However, dark and lowering war clouds had gathered rapidly over the UK by the 31st of July 1914. Wednesday the 5th of August contained the headline that the Belfast public had been dreading. War with Germany, 11 o'clock last night. In Belfast, the streets became filled with people who were waiting to hear any news from London. For some, however, the European crisis was a welcome distraction from the troubles at home. Frank Percy Crozier, a commander of the West Belfast UVF, observed paradoxically how one war was averted at the expense of another. He said, There are ominous signs of war, and we are glad. To us, the relief is truly great. 
and you can see how, from sentiments like this, that it must have been an extremely confusing time. Meanwhile, the Home Rule Bill was eventually passed into law, but suspended until such times as the European crisis had concluded. After the King had given his assent to the bill, His Majesty's picture was greeted with boos and picture houses and music halls across Belfast. Indeed, at several Protestant churches, members of the congregation walked out in protest during services and when the national anthem was being sung. Around 60,000 Irishmen were immediately mobilised upon the outbreak of the war. Of those, approximately 30,000 were pre-war regular soldiers. We often forget that men were in the army and the navy before the war. Some of them had served in the Boer War. Latterly, a lot of them were stationed in places like India. A further 30,000 were pre-war reservists. And these reservists were called up immediately. And this applied to those in the UVF, the Irish Volunteers, and those involved in neither of the volunteer militias. Around 3,000 reservists departed the Belfast shipyards, for example, during the opening days and weeks of the war. The departure of the reservists from Belfast on steamers sailing from Donegal Quay prompted patriotic scenes in the city as crowds poured into the quays from places like Sandy Row and Ballymacarrot, many waving Union Jacks and singing songs. Beyond those who were mobilised as reservists, the rest, around 150,000, enlisted as volunteers. These volunteers were motivated by a range of factors. Political convictions, for example, particularly aided recruitment to the Unionist 36th Ulster Division and the Nationalist 16th Irish Division. However, politics could also complicate recruitment. I've seen evidence of at least one Orange Lodge in Belfast actively discouraging recruitment at a particular point in the war. However, peer pressure, adventure and masculinity were also at play as was the sense that the war was about genuine issues and that it was a conflict that had to be won. The 10th Irish Division were the first of the Irish Volunteer Divisions to be formed and had its ranks filled by men from across the island. The 36th Ulster Division were slightly slower off the mark and took four weeks to be granted War Office approval and to begin its recruitment process. On Wednesday the 9th of September then, at Windsor Park, home of Linfield Football Club, Upwards of 1,200 men from the South Belfast UVF, some of whom were carrying arms, mustered for a parade. The men were addressed by James Craig, who reiterated Sir Edward Carson's appeal for volunteers to join the New Ulster Division, and that those who joined would play, quote, a manly part not because they were asked to do it, but because they knew in their hearts and consciences it was the proper and right thing to do. In response... There was a chorus of cheers from the men. Thursday the 10th and Friday the 11th of September were devoted to the enlistment of men from the South Belfast UVF into the 36th Ulster Division. Those intending to enlist paraded from the brewery buildings in Sandy Row at 9am to the recruitment office at the Old Town Hall in Victoria Street which opened at 10am. The men were given an enthusiastic send-off from the people of Sandy Row. On the Friday, the South Belfast Volunteers were once again addressed by James Craig when he said that the men of Sandy Row had, in response to their country's call and that of Sir Edward Carson, come forward in such an admirable manner that it augured well for the successful formation of the Belfast Brigade. 
By Saturday the 12th of September, many of the South Belfast volunteers who had enlisted in this phase of recruitment were on their way to Donard Lodge Camp, where they would begin their military training. That day they had mustered again at the brewery buildings, many of whom for the last time, where they were led by the South Belfast UVF band to the Belfast and County Down Railway via Sandy Row and Boyne Square towards Great Victoria Street and onward to Queen's Bridge. Many of the Sandy Row volunteers found themselves in the 10th Battalion Royal Irish Rifles, but not exclusively. A Company of the 9th Royal Irish Rifles, for example, under Captain McCready, was made up of a strong contingent of Sandy Row men. Initially, A Company were encamped for a period at Tullymore Park, where they practiced trench digging and route marching before moving out to Ballykinder Camp in November for musketry training on the firing ranges. It was here that these ordinary volunteers were transformed into soldiers. Ulster Division veteran George Hill from South Belfast later recalled how he witnessed boys being turned into men as a result of the training provided at Ballykinder. He said the lads were arriving home on weekend leaves, bronzed, fit, full of beans. I remember particularly a chap who lived in the next street with his widowed mother and a group of sisters. He had been a clerk in an office or a bank. An ordinary pale-faced young city dweller, you'd say. The rough and tumble of camp life had transformed him into a picture of manliness. There was also the option to join the Royal Navy or the Royal Flying Corps. These aspects of the military are often overlooked when we think of the First World War. Many Belfast men served in the Navy and suffered in the countless naval tragedies that occurred throughout the war. And it's here that I'm going to begin with Sandy Rowe's contribution to the war. At the Battle of Coronel on the 1st of November 1914, the German Navy secured a victory over the Royal Navy off the coast of Chile. During the battle, HMS Monmouth and HMS Good Hope were both lost. Monmouth was struck by a torpedo and capsized, taking down all 734 men on board. There were no survivors. Good Hope suffered 35 hits during the firefight and was sunk, taking down all 926 men, again with no survivors. Among the dead was Gunner James McVeigh, aged 26, of 67 Burma Street. McVeigh was nine years in the Royal Marine Artillery and had seen a great deal of service both at home and abroad. He was actually on board HMS Hindustan when the Prince of Wales was an officer on board the ship. Despite not residing in Sandy Row, his connection to the district was through the Ulster Volunteer Force, where he visited the quarters of the South Belfast Regiment in Sandy Row while home on furlough, which suggests that he might have been a member there prior to the war. Any notions that the ordinary public did not fully comprehend the horrible realities of war soon evaporated in early November 1914, when wounded soldiers and sailors began arriving in Belfast for treatment in local hospitals. The local press naturally reported their arrival in great detail, including details of the injuries sustained. It was reported that most of the men were Irish or from Irish regiments. They had landed in Dublin before being dispersed by train to various locations, including Belfast. Some of the men were not able to leave the train without assistance, such was the extent of their injuries. The majority, though, had been incapacitated by injuries to their arms and legs. Some smoked cigarettes as they lay on their stretchers, in a scene which seems almost comical now. 
Irish units of the British Expeditionary Force were involved in fighting for the first time around the 22nd of August 1914. These were pre-war regular soldiers and the battalions were religiously mixed, a good proportion of them from Belfast. They were tasked with halting the German advance through Belgium and into France, but they were heavily outnumbered and so much of the early experiences of these Irish men will have been in retreat. At this stage the conflict was fast-paced and mobile. It might also be described as old-fashioned style warfare with much reliance on horses. During the winter of 1914-1915 the fighting had stagnated. Trenches became more permanent and there was no end in sight to the war. By the beginning of 1915, Sandy Rose's Great War was still being experienced through the reserve and regular soldiers and by naval men. Volunteers who had been recruited would follow later in the year. Rifleman Joshua Brush of 85 Matilda Street, for example, was killed on the 14th of January 1915 with A Company, the 2nd Battalion Royal Irish Rifles. He was 43 years old and had served previously in the Boer War. Today, he's commemorated at the Menning Gate in Ypres. The 2nd Royal Irish Rifles at this time were rotated between the front line and reserve areas on a regular basis, and when Brush was killed on the 14th of January, they were in the front line trenches near Kemmel. According to Professor Richard Grayson, the 2nd Royal Irish Rifles had developed a reputation in this period for being one of the worst disciplined battalions in the army. The previous month, in December, a 2nd Battalion sergeant was shot by his own men while distributing the rum ration. Recruits were still required for the Ulster Division well into 1915, and novel schemes were sometimes hatched to encourage men to enlist. In February of 1915, a recruiting tram car was used by decorating it with posters patriotic notices, with the destination sign on the front marked to Enlist Now. The idea was that the tram would travel across Belfast with a recruiting officer on board. Potential recruits would simply climb aboard and be taken to the old town hall free of charge. On Saturday the 20th of February, the tram car made a trial journey to the Sandy Row Tram Depot, where it was inspected by James Craig, who by this time held the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the 36th Ulster Division. Beyond the volunteer divisions, which often dominate our understanding of the war, men had the option of joining a variety of units. There were options to join alternative Irish regiments. English, Scottish and Welsh regiments were popular too, in some cases because these regiments were actively recruiting in Ireland. Private David Hiles of 36 Boyne Square in Sandy Row was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal while serving with the 1st Battalion King's Royal Rifle Corps. He had recently moved to England for work, which is where he enlisted. His DCM was awarded for conspicuous bravery at Govinci on the 10th of March. Unfortunately, in August 1918, Hiles, who was by this time a sergeant, died at the age of 24 from the effects of gas and is buried at Belfast City Cemetery. Another man who died with a non-Irish regiment in the early part of 1915 was Private William Bell of 3 Ockram Street, Sandy Row. Bell, aged 36, died with the 2nd Battalion Manchester Regiment in March 1915 and is buried at La Latterie Military Cemetery in Belgium. 
Meanwhile, back in Ireland, the 36th Ulster Division was striving towards war readiness. On Saturday the 8th of May, the day after the sinking of the Lusitania, a grand parade of the entire division took place in Belfast. It was described by the Belfast Evening Telegraph as the greatest military display in the long and eventful history of Belfast. The parade had a farewell feel to it, in that the men involved had been enlisting since September 1914 and were now ready to undertake the next phase of their military training in England. The parade was also used as a recruitment event. On the walls and hoardings along the parade route, recruitment messages were prominently displayed. One read, Wouldn't you rather be marching with your pals today than looking on? While another read, Is the Ulster Division to be kept at home because you hesitate? The latter message was in reference to the division's need for a further six to 7,000 new recruits to fill the ranks of reserve battalions. The task of filling the ranks of the Ulster Division was an ongoing battle. The division gathered at Malone in South Belfast, utilising a timetable with allocated arrival slots. From 9am, the roads surrounding Malone resonated to the sound of marching men. The volunteer soldiers received the command to fall in at 12pm, at which point they were inspected by Major General McCallment for three quarters of an hour, followed by a march past of the saluting base. By all accounts, the Malone Review was an impressive spectacle. The Belfast Evening Telegraph reported that a concentration of troops so numerous and compact had never before been seen in Belfast. The division then paraded to the city centre via the Lisburn Road, Shaftesbury Square, Great Victoria Street and Wellington Place. Sandy Row had been decorated with Union Jacks for the occasion, while the Sandy Row Orange Hall was used as one of the 23 first aid stations across the city on the day. After another march passed and salute at Belfast City Hall, which took 1 hour and 40 minutes to pass, the parade made its way along Chichester Street and Victoria Street before eventually dispersing at North Street. As the war moved into 1915, it became a world war in every sense. The number of countries getting involved continued to grow. The Turkish Empire, for example, sided with Germany and Austria-Hungary from October 1914. As First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill was an enthusiastic advocate of military action against Turkey to protect British interests in the area. The plan was to launch a naval attack along the Dardanelles Straits, followed by amphibious beach landings. One of Kitchener's new army divisions, the 10th Irish Division, as well as Australian and New Zealand ANZAC forces, were part of this assault. The fighting was bitter and brutal, and many Belfast men died at Gallipoli. Stoker Robert Jones from 37 Hurst Street in Sandy Row died on the 13th of May 1915 when his ship HMS Goliath was sunk by an Ottoman destroyer in the Dardanelles. Out of the crew of 750, 570 were killed in the sinking. By the end of 1915, the Allies conceded that they were not going to achieve their objectives of reaching Constantinople and so they decided to withdraw, having achieved nothing except for the horrific loss of life. Amongst the Irish units that suffered heavily was the 1st Royal Enniskilling Fusiliers, who lost 441 men at Gallipoli, around half of their battalion. Back in Seaford and Sussex, the Ulster Division were undergoing an intensified training regime throughout September, as final preparations were being made for their deployment to France. At 10pm on Sunday the 3rd of October, 
The 10th Royal Irish Rifles sailed from Folkestone to Boulogne, where they arrived at 1am. It was a calm, dark night on the English Channel. Having entered the theatre of war in early October 1915, it was not long before they would start to suffer casualties. Rifleman Robert Dixon of the 10th Royal Irish Rifles died while carrying a wounded comrade who was also killed on the 25th of November 1915. He was just 19 years of age. Prior to the war, Dixon, who was from 92 and 94 Sandy Row, was an apprentice plumber, as well as a member of the South Belfast Regiment UVF. He had enlisted in the early stages of the war in 1914. Following the tragic incident, Dixon's senior officer, Captain Gregg of the 10th Royal Irish Rifles, wrote a letter to his father in Sandy Row. It is with deep regret that I write to inform you of the death of your son. He was shot through the head by a German sniper on Thursday the 25th of November while on duty in the frontline trenches. At about 6.20am on Thursday I spoke to him. Ten minutes later I passed him at his post. The bullet passed through his brain. Death was instantaneous. Your son was a nice boy, very cheerful and bright, and a good and obedient soldier. His very sudden death in the battlefields has come as quite a shock to every man in his platoon, he being a favourite with his comrades. The one consolation you have is that your son met his death while at his post serving his king and country. You will be pleased to know that his body was laid to rest in a grave in the rear of the battleground. Any further information you may desire to know, just write me and I shall be pleased to answer. I wish to convey to Mrs Dixon and yourself and each member of your family my deepest sympathy. Sandy Rowe was to suffer more fatalities before the end of the year. Rifleman James Kerr of 73 Rowland Street was killed on the 4th of December near Varennes. He was one of the division's first infantrymen to lose his life at the front. Prior to the war, Kerr was employed at Queen's Island and was a member of the South Belfast Regiment UVF. Three days later, on the 7th of December, in the same trenches at Varennes, Rifleman Samuel Wright of 10 Bentham Street also died, aged 41, with the 10th Royal Irish Rifles. His wife received the following letter from Lieutenant McLaurin. Please accept my sincere sympathy in your sad bereavement. Your husband was in the platoon under my command and was well known to me as a splendid soldier. He was shot through the head by a German sniper while carrying rations to his comrades. Your husband was only about 20 yards behind me, walking along the trench when he met his death. You have the satisfaction of knowing that he died doing his duty in the cause of right. He was one of the best soldiers in my platoon and very popular with his comrades. I personally feel his loss very much. The company commander and the other officers of the company desire me to convey to you their sincere sympathy. I trust you will be brave in this trying time. After a period behind the lines and billets, the 10th Royal Irish Rifles moved to the trenches again on the 13th of December, this time at Asho. Then, on the 16th of December, another Sandy Row man was lost. Rifleman William Lavery of 32 Blythe Street died of wounds. He was 43 years old and was buried at Mealy Mealy Cemetery. Meanwhile, back in Sandy Row, a terrible incident had occurred involving a naval officer of the Royal Naval Reserve. Sub-Lieutenant Robert Lees, who was originally from just outside Coleraine, 
was serving with the Royal Naval Reserve and was stationed at Portsmouth. Leagues married a woman from the Sandy Row area whom he had met on a train journey between Belfast and Coleraine and they were married three months later in the Crescent Presbyterian Church earlier in 1915. Interestingly, the newspaper piece on the incident uh, didn't even provide the name of the woman involved other than to refer to her as Mrs Lees, the husband of Robert Lees or the daughter of Mr James Getty. Yet another example of the anonymity of women in cases such as this. I had to go looking for her name and eventually discovered she was called Elizabeth. On the 16th of December, Lees arrived in Belfast from Glasgow on a flying visit to see his wife Elizabeth. He was due to leave again that night before returning to duty the very next day. The couple had breakfast at the home of their father-in-law at 17 Glenalpin Street before going shopping in Belfast city centre. Upon returning to Glenalpin Street, the couple set about packing some clothes for Robert's departure that evening, at which point Sub-Lieutenant Lees produced a revolver and shot his wife dead before turning the gun on himself, death in both cases being instantaneous. Mrs Lees was found with a parcel of her husband's clothes by her side and the candle used to light the room was rested on her shoulder. The murder and suicide caused great shock in the local area and a large crowd of what the Belfast newsletter described as morbid sightseers gathered outside the property in Glenalpin Street for what appeared to be an inexplicable incident. Back in France, the 10th Royal Irish Rifles were about to experience their first Christmas at the front. There would be no repeat of the famous Christmas truce from the year before, in 1914. From the 21st of December until Christmas Day, the South Belfast Battalion were in the frontline trenches at Mealy Mealy. On Christmas Eve, they lost another Sandy Row man, Rifleman William Beatty of 35 Gaffigan Street, who died of wounds aged 42. Prior to the war, Beatty was one of the founder members of the 2nd Sandy Row Battalion, South Belfast UVF, and a member of Sandy Row Temperance LOL 901. The circumstances were doubly tragic when the local newspapers reported that his wife had died 18 months previously, meaning that his four children went to live with their grandparents. Elsewhere, the year drew to a close with the death of Stoker Thomas Newell on board HMS Natal. Natal was sunk by an internal explosion near Cromarty on the 30th of December 1915, which caused the deaths of at least 390 crewmen and civilians. Newell, who was 23 years old, didn't have an address in Sandy Row that I'm aware of, but he was a member of the Sandy Row True Blues Flute Band. Prior to the war, he had worked for four years in the Boilermakers Department of Workmen and Clark. And having died on almost the last day of 1915, it was a cruel irony because his brother William, aged just 19, went down with HMS Formidable on New Year's Day, the 1st of January 1915, at the very beginning of the same year. <laughs> 